again, your Bibles, if you have your Bibles or you want to feel free to use the, the TV screens above or your iPhone or your iPad, whatever, just turn to the book of John. John is going to be speaking on John. That was not my, uh, that was uh, Anthony's, uh, John is going to be speaking on the book of John. I've been in John now about four years, you know that, right? <laughs> Preaching once a month, you can't go through it very fast, am I right? And the 11th chapter alone, we're going through four parts, and we're on the third part tonight. And the last time I spoke, uh, Chris, can we just lower the volume down just a little bit, a little feedback, just a little bit, okay. And the last time I spoke on chapter 11, we looked at Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and life. He made a claim. The first part was Jesus said this illness was not going to end in death. It's going to be for the glory of God. Uh, The second part was his claim. And the third part tonight is resurrection power demonstrated. So the last time he claimed, he was not, and this time he's going to demonstrate. He's not going to just resurrect Lazarus from the dead. But he himself was the resurrection and the life. And the entire loved chapter of this gospel centers on Christ's claim to be the resurrection and the life. And as we get into the next section of this chapter, we're going to see his claim become a reality. The actual raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. But this is, this is the last sign of the seven. John based his gospel around seven signs, seven miracles. And this is the last of the seven signs. And the greatest one, the raising of the dead. And this miracle we're going to see tonight serve two purposes. Number one, it greatly encouraged and deepened the faith of Martha, Mary, and Christ's disciples. And the second purpose, it was a stern rebuke to the unbelieving Jews' hard hearts and their rejecting Christ. This miracle is going to also encourage you and me. In the 21st century because it prefigures Christ's power in raising us up from spiritual deadness. So let's look at John 11, 38 to 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. In 1932, there was a World Series, a very famous World Series, the New York Yankees against the Chicago Cubs. And it was game three in the fifth inning when the great Babe Ruth was up at bat, and fans of... And the fans and the Chicago Cubs on the bench were taunting and jeering at, at um, Babe Ruth. And during the, at, the at-bat, Ruth made a pointing gesture. Everybody remembers that. Which existing films confirms, but the exact meaning of his gesture to this day remains ambiguous. 
Although neither fully confirmed nor refuted, the story goes that Ruth pointed to the center field bleachers during the at-bat. It was allegedly a declaration that he would hit a home run to that part of Park. And many believe that w- that's what happened, and I want to believe that too. And to make my point, I'm going to uh, say that that's what was happening. And if that's what he was doing, that has to be the greatest sport play of all time, probably never to be repeated, that he would point to the area where he was going to hit the home run, in spite of all the jeering and the taunting. What a great scene that must have been. Game three, fifth inning, two strikes, the crowds and the Cubs bench jeering. And by the way, Babe Ruth was giving it right back to them. Don't think he was just standing there. Then he points to the center field, the pitch, crack, home run, 440 feet to 490 feet, right over the center field into the bleachers. They won the game 7-5, and the next day they won the game, another game, sweeping the series. See, Babe Ruth delivered. He did what he said he was going to do. The mocking crowds never intimidated him. Now, on an eternally far greater level, Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He told both Martha and Mary he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, that he alone had the power to do that. They believed Jesus, but not for an immediate resurrection, but for a future one. However, Jesus had, as we said the last time, an immediate resurrection in mind because he himself was the resurrection and the life. Like Babe Ruth, who pointed to the center field, And was saying without words, I'm going to show you a home run and crack the ball over the fence. Jesus points to himself and in essence says, not a future resurrection, but a now resurrection. Because I am the resurrection and the life. And call Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus is now alive. Jesus points to himself and calls people to believe in him for eternal life. And here's our challenge. Only Jesus, or I should say only those who hear, believe and obey the voice of Jesus We'll have eternal life and see the glory of God. And as we go through this section today, I would like to bring three points to your attention, which are relevant to us today. The command, Jesus gave a command. The prayer, he prayed to his father. And the demonstration, the actual miracle. Let's go to our first one, the command. And I want you to listen carefully. When Jesus gives us a command, and that's primarily through the scriptures, do it. Don't doubt it. Obey it. And you're going to see the glory of God. Verse 30 to 30, 38 to 40 again. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone laid against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for there has been, he has been dead four days. Jesus said to him, to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, verse 38 tells us Jesus was deeply moved again, which is a repeat of verse 33. And as I said the last time, the Greek word for deeply moved connotes anger or sternness. And once again, he was probably anger with humanity's greatest enemy, death, and the unbelief he was encountering. When Jesus gets angry, it's always righteous indignation, always. He never sinned in his anger. And Jesus has the perfect ability to have grief and compassion and yet be outraged. This is the Jesus who could utter his terrible woes 
In Matthew 23, woe to you Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs, and yet grieve over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to gather you under my wing as a chicken um, gathers her hen under his wings, her wings. I mean, that's the same Jesus. When we get angry, we usually sin. But we get angry, we can't get angry without sinning. The Bible teaches us in Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. It's okay to be angry at injustice. It's okay to be angry at death, unrighteousness and sin. It's okay to be angry what God is angry about without sinning. A few weeks ago, when ISIS attacked Paris, and recently the San Bernardino, California shootings, Paris, France, 129 people were killed and hundreds of others were injured, some seriously. We were angry, and rightfully so. And it was right to be angry, but we need to be careful that we don't sin in our anger. Instead, we need to humbly seek to promote justice and peace rather than revenge. That's the difference. So Jesus, deeply moved because of death, because of the unbelief, comes to the tomb where Lazarus was buried. And commonly in Israel, a tomb was a cave. The cave was probably a natural cave rather than a man-made one. In either case, this cave was used for, for the tomb. Um, it would probably have shelves in it or indentations for, the, for other bodies. Other bodies from previous years could have occupied Lazarus' tomb. The tomb was also like, located outside the village so that the people living would not become defiled by contact with a dead body, according to Numbers 19.16. Also, a large stone was used to seal the tomb to keep out grave robbers and and animals. But here's where the rubber meets the road. Jesus gives the command to move away the stone. He is about to back up his claim with a display of his divine power. Jesus never made claims, but always backed them up with action. Never just made claims, always backed them up with action. Remember when Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water I will give him? will never thirst, back in John 4, when he met the Samaritan woman. In essence, he was saying, I am the living water. And what does he do? He gives the water, or he gives the woman of Samaria, and many people from her village spiritual water, that he made, so, um, and made them that they should never thirst again. He gave them the gospel. And they never were thirsty again. In chapter 6, Jesus says he is the bread of life. And he de- demonstrates it by multiplying loaves of bread and feeding upwards of 20,000 people. And he didn't only feed men's physical body, but their souls also. Chapters 8 and 9, Jesus said he was the light of the world. And bam, he gives light, physical light, to a blind beggar and then follows it up with spiritual sight by giving him the gospel. And in chapter 10, he claims to be I. And the shepherd. And he demonstrates it by physical and spiritual care of his own sheep. And now, here we are again, where Jesus makes another claim to be the resurrection and the life. And he's now going to verify his claim by raising Lazarus from the dead by his divine power. See, Jesus never made a claim without backing it up. He's going to give physical life to Lazarus, but also spiritual life to those standing around. In every incident, Jesus does both physically and spiritually what he claimed. And now he gives the command to take away the stone. And he tells men around, move away the stone. You see, Jesus 
uses ordinary means, the men, to take away ordinary obstructions, the stone. So his divine power will come face to face with the supernatural element, the dead body, raised back to life. In other words, you men take away the stone. You have the power to do that. But I will do what I only have the power to do, and that's to raise the dead back to life. And Jesus commands, Jesus' command sends Martha into a tizzy. I mean, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And you see, what Jesus' command did was brought doubt of Martha, the doubt of Martha to the surface. Now, as I was wondering, why John describes Martha as the sister of the dead man, I thought that even though Martha had faith in Christ, after all, she did confess him, the Christ of the Son of God who was coming into the world in verse 27. She believed who he was. However, she didn't believe that he would raise her brother now. But it's evident by a statement that there will be an odor because he's been dead four days. So she really didn't believe Jesus at that point. So I think John may have described her as a sister of the dead man because that part of her faith was as dead as her brother. And that part of her faith was also going to be raised from a dead faith to a living faith, just as Lazarus was going to be raised from his physical dead state. Not only Martha, but also many in that crowd of mourners were going to experience a resurrected faith. And hopefully, some of us will experience our faith being raised from the dead today from the testimony of this passage that I'm preaching on. The Bible says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. We have to admit that Jesus is extremely patient with Martha. After Martha expresses doubt and unbelief, Jesus doesn't condemn her, does he? No. But he reinstates his promise, which may partly bring hope into her heart and partly a gentle rebuke because of her doubt and unbelief. Did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? When we come to faith in Christ... That is just the beginning of faith. Our faith needs to grow as well as Martha's. Now I think it's true that some have extraordinary faith at the moment of conversion. But generally speaking, our faith needs to develop and mature. Even the most, even the most, uh, the greatest faith of, uh, that a person could have needs to develop and mature. Jesus understood Martha's grief and her doubt, but he knew that our faith needed to grow. Dr. Charles Stanley said, our Heavenly Father understands our disappointment, suffering, pain, fear, and doubt. He's always there to encourage our hearts and help us to understand that He's sufficient for all our needs. When I accepted this as an absolute truth in my life, I found that my worrying stopped. You see, that's wonderful what He said, and I believe that. But Jesus wants to teach Martha and all believers, faith first, then sight later. And even though he understands, as Dr. Stanley wonderfully said, God still wants to teach us and remind us of his promises, and sometimes there's a gentle rebuke involved. You see, Martha did flunk the test here. She either forgot or didn't understand the promise Christ gave her. And and Jesus reminds her, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. What was Jesus trying to teach Martha here? Stop focusing on her brother's dead body And start focusing on Him. We need to stop focusing on our problems. And start focusing on the one who solves the problems. That's Christ. What Jesus 
That's what Jesus was trying to do. Do you know that I think one of the major problems with American Christianity is we focus on the problem, not the problem solver? We need a job. Our prayers focus and center on getting a job. We're sick. We focus on healing. We have unsafe children. We focus on their salvation. You see, our focus does not center on God. Our focus centers, centers on the answered prayer, the problem. Martha's whole attention was on her brother's dead body. And if the stone is rolled away, the smell would be un- unbearable. Her focus wasn't on God, on Christ that was standing right in front of her. Her focus was on her brother's dead body. She didn't understand that the author of life himself was whom she was speaking to. Jesus wants her full focus on him. Faith is only good, by the way, as its object. The object of our faith is Christ. Our full focus needs to be on Christ, and we will see the glory of God. Of course, Christ raising, from the, uh, raising Lazarus from the dead was not dependent on Martha's faith. We, we must understand that. No matter how she responded, Jesus was sovereignly going to resurrect Lazarus to glorify himself and his father. And all those in the crowd who believed in Jesus would see the fullness of God's glory. Dr. Leon Morris, an Australian New Testament scholar, explains it like this. For Jesus, the glory of God was the one important thing. This means the real meaning of what he would do would be accessible only to faith. All who were there, believers or not, would see the miracle. But Jesus is promising Martha a sight of glory... The crowd would see the miracle, but only believers would perceive its real significance, the glory. Genuine faith in Christ does not determine whether Jesus would raise Lazarus from the dead, but would determine the miracle's importance. That's God's glory. Some of you might be thinking, what is the glory of God anyway? What, what, What does that mean? And it's not easy to define. But we can define it like this. The glory of God is the beauty of His Spirit. It is not a material beauty, but it is the beauty that emanates from His character, from all that He is. Dr. John Piper defines it like this. The infinite beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. And Dr. John MacArthur says, The glory of God is the revelation of all His excellence, all His attributes, all the fullness of His person. In other words... It's a beauty that emanates from his character. All he does, the believer will see the beauty of it. Not so with the unbeliever. They don't see the glory of God. We can see the glory of God manifested in many ways. In other words, for example, we see it manifested in his goodness. We see it manifested in his mercy. We see it manifested in his love. And so on. And in this text tonight, we see another manifestation of his glory. That is the ability to give life. Martha, get your eyes on me and my glory. Don't be preoccupied with your dead brother, but with me. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transferred into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what are we beholding? We're beholding our problems? No, we should be holding God's glory. At that point, Martha was beholding her problem. 
Romans 6, 4 says, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. What raised Christ from the dead? That was the glory of the Father. So one of the manifestations of the glory of God is the resurrection power. There is nothing more powerful in the Christian's life than to be preoccupied with the glory of Christ. There's nothing more powerful than that. When this happens, guess what? He becomes the undisputed object of our faith. Then it's all about him. Not about our jobs. Not about our families. Not about our sickness. Not about our financial worries. It's about him. And because he is our focus, guess what? He takes care of our needs, doesn't he? Listen to Matthew 6.33. But seek, what? First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. As one writer says, this is to be our consuming priority. When we do this, guess what? It brings glory to God. Anyway, the command was obeyed, and the bystanders took away the stone. And after the command, before Jesus raises Lazarus, he prays, which is the second point, the prayer. We looked at the command, now we're going to look at the prayer. And Jesus' prayer is an encouragement to us to always lift our hearts to our Father in humble reverence, yet with holy boldness and thanksgiving, and bring glory to Him. Verse 41 and 42 again. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around that they, might, they may believe that you sent me. Now there are four aspects of Christ's prayer that I want you to see tonight. I went over this with the, with the prayer group on Thursday night. I gave them a little snapshot of this, but I'm going to look at it a little deeper tonight. The first one is Jesus' prayer was premeditated. Okay, The implication of his prayer is that he already prayed for Lazarus. This was not a last minute request or an afterthought. He was prepared. It's okay that sometimes our prayers are premeditated. They don't always have to be spontaneous. If, if we are ever asked to pray, maybe at a wedding or some kind of event, or maybe we know we're going to pray uh, at a family dinner, it's good to plan a prayer. It's okay. It is not unspiritual to plan a prayer. Occasionally, not very often, I will write out my prayer. I don't want to forget what was going on in my heart at the time I was thinking about what I was going to pray about. So basically, Jesus was praying a prayer already prayed, thanking his Father already for the answered prayer. Second, his prayer was thankful. Jesus gave thanks for the Father hearing him. Our prayers should always be uttered with a heart filled with gratitude. Whether it's private or public prayer, we should always give thanks. Jesus exemplified it, not only here, but other places in Scripture as well. And we are commanded to be thankful also. For example, Paul tells the Philippians in 4.6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, what? With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Moving along, the third aspect of Christ's prayer was public. Jesus prayed publicly. Not all prayers are private. Some prayers are publicly. There are times we pray publicly. However, our public prayers are not so that people 
can view us of how spiritual we are. They ought to be Christ-centered. I know we laugh, but I've been a Christian 37 years, and I hear people pray sometimes, and you know, you know they're not, they're praying publicly for one reason. Show off. And I've seen that. And maybe, maybe, in my earlier days, maybe I was even guilty of that. Okay, so, um, you know, I'm not as spiritual as you think. But they are to be Christ-centered, first and foremost, for His glory, and then for the benefit of your hearers. Not for bragging or showing off, but for their benefit. When Elijah was challenging Israel to stop wavering between God of Israel and the pagan god Baal, he prayed publicly. So they would hear his prayer. And when fire fell down from heaven and consumed the prophets of Baal's sacrifice, they would know Jehovah is truly God and not Baal. Listen to his public prayer. 1 Kings verses 18, or chapter 18, verses 37 to 40. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licking and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. How many times have I heard people pray publicly and my heart was moved because of the content of their prayer? Now, I don't mind giving honor to where honor is due, but when Brian prays, my heart is moved because he prays with passion and he prays with his eyes fixed on Christ and his word. So I I am moved when he prays, when he prays public prayers. Public prayers can encourage the hearer and motivate them to action. And the fourth one is, Jesus' prayer was intimate. Jesus addresses God as Father. When we get a glimpse here of the relationship of the triune Godhead, especially the Father-Son relationship, we see that it's not just a dead, cold religion. There's, There's a relationship here. We get a glimpse here of the relationship of the triune God, especially the Father and Son relationship. Jesus was very intimate with His Father. And his public prayer, as Dr. D.A. Carson says, seeks to draw his hearers into the intimacy of Jesus' own relationship with the Father. One thing about Christianity is that it is set apart from all religions because of the relationship between God and the believer, between Christ and his church. There is no other religion like that. When the Muslims and Islam calls out to Allah, it's very impersonal. They call to a God that will chop your head off if you do something wrong. Hindu gods. Buddhist gods. They're all impersonal. Only Christianity. Jesus said we could call him Abba. Father. Abba. He says call him Abba. Abba is an Aramaic word. It's very intimate. It's like saying daddy. It's like when my daughter calls me daddy. I melt. It's, that's the way it is. There's an intimate relationship, and Jesus is teaching us that. To summarize this prayer that Jesus prayed, Jesus prayed this prayer before he raised Lazarus to benefit Martha, 
Mary and the people in the crowd. So that when Lazarus is raised, they would believe that the father had sent them. They will see the unity of the father and son and give glory to God. So Jesus gives the command and he prays and now the demonstration. So we have the command, the prayer, and now the demonstration, which is our third and final point. You see, Jesus doesn't just give you empty claims and promises. He doesn't give you empty claims and promises for your life. He brings reality to them for the glory of God. And as I said before, Jesus doesn't just claim to be the resurrection of the life. He is now going to demonstrate his glorious claim. He's going to prove that he is God who created the heavens and the earth by his word and will now breathe the breath of life into Lazarus by that same word. Verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Bind him and let him go. Three things happened here. He commanded them, he performed the miracle, and he met the need. The first thing he does before the miracle, he gives a simple but short, abrupt command. Lazarus, come out. The original Greek is more like, Lazarus, here, outside. That's what he was saying. Jesus didn't whisper for Lazarus to come out. It wasn't even a normal conversation voice. Remember that saying? You're talking so loud you can raise the dead? Or you could wake the dead? Well, Jesus walked the dead, Lazarus. I have some people at work that talk so loud in the morning when I get in, they could raise the dead. We are not told why Jesus cried out so loudly. He could have whispered, right? And, 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 And Lazarus would have come forth. But I think he cried out loudly because he wanted all that were present to hear. And Dr. Kent Hughes says this. He says he didn't have to shout, but he wanted everyone to comprehend the drama. I like that. Because that's what I think Jesus was doing. He wants them to understand what was going on. I'm raising the dead. I'm the resurrection and the life. Lazarus is going to come up out of that grave because I said so. And he wanted them to understand the the drama. But also, there's another reason. And I like what the Expositor's Greek Testament, quoting a scholar, Lamba, Lamp, He said this, it was the natural utterance of his confidence and the authority he felt. And that's why he shouted. In other words, the loud cry matched the confidence and authority Christ had. And when he cried for Lazarus to come out, the claim he made melted into the demonstration. The miracle happened. All of a sudden... The life of God filled Lazarus' motionless body. His heart started to beat. His lungs began to expand and contract. His mind was awakened and thoughts began to filter through the cells of his brain. His skeletal and muscles began to move and he jumped up and could scarcely walk because of the great clothes wrapped around his body. So he hopped and shuffled out of the cave so all could see this awesome miracle. He's alive, they must have cried out. He's alive. And Jesus said... Unbind him and let him go. He meets Lazarus' need. Get the grave clothes off. I mean, he couldn't walk. It was hindering him. And you know what I love? This is what I love. Jesus doesn't get carried away with the amazement of the miracle. That he forgets the need of the recipient of the miracle. There was a practical need that Jesus met there. 
the grave cloths clothes were hindering Lazarus to move about freely. So Jesus commands them to be removed. You're alive, Lazarus. You don't need them anymore. He met a practical need when he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. What was his command? Give us something to eat. No hype. No fanfare. No commotion. The scene closes with any, without any record of reuniting Lazarus with his sisters. None of that. We don't see none of that. That would have only taken away from the reason he did the miracle, which was to glorify God so the crowd and the other readers of this gospel would believe. You can imagine the scene when Lazarus came out of the tomb. Martha, Mary, and the crowd, their jaws must have dropped to the floor seeing a dead man come walking out of of the tomb. It is suggested that if Jesus didn't call out Lazarus by name, all the dead would have come out of their graves. (laughs) Guess what? Well said, brother. You know your theology. One day they will. That's precisely what is going to happen one day. Turn to John 5, 28 and 29. This is Jesus talking, not John Verde. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who? All who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You see, all the dead are going to hear his voice. All the dead, righteous and unrighteous. The unsaved, those who put their faith and trust in Christ. And it's evidenced by their good works. And those who rejected Christ and is evidenced by the evil works. Without a doubt, this is, was a great climatic miracle of John's gospel. Of all the seven recorded signs in John's gospel. But it pales in anticipation of what was to come. Christ's own resurrection. Lazarus was going to die again. He wasn't raised incorruptible. He was not raised incorruptible. Jesus was raised incorruptible. Conquering death. He was the first fruits of all who died. And one day the trumpet will sound and all the believers including Lazarus will receive incorruptible bodies. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15.54 When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You see, Christ rose from the dead and conquered death. Do we have this miracle today, the raising of the dead? No and yes. Let's start off with no. First of all, God has the power to raise any dead dead person whenever he wants. His power by no stretch of the imagination has ever diminished. But does it happen today? Now, listen, I'm well aware that many claim that this takes place in our day. And I need to be honest, I have never seen any dead person raised back to life. And I just think there's a lot of charlatans out there who say that this sort of things happen but don't have the proof. Now, I, I want to leave myself an out. I think if a missionary or an evangelist in a particular place in the world, which is void of the written word, void of the gospel, in other words, they have never heard the gospel, they don't have Bibles, they never really had the word of God, maybe, maybe something like that could happen. And I say that very carefully because I've never even read of anything like that by people I trust, never. So I would have to conclude that generally speaking, raising the dead does not happen today. 
However, yes, it does happen today. The raising of the dead unequivocally does happen today. Turn to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. Paul tells the Ephesian church, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Amen. So every time Christ calls the name of a dead sinner, their spirit awakens, it comes alive, it is raised from the dead. Amen. So yes, He still raises the dead Amen. today. Amen. Listen carefully. It is just as glorious a miracle. I want you to hear this and understand this. It's just as glorious a miracle when a dead sinner is raised to life, as when Jesus raised Lazarus or the others he raised, or when a number of people in the Old Testament were raised back to life, and even when some of the apostles uh, raised people back to life. It's just as glorious when a dead sinner is raised back to life. Listen, if you have been born again, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead raised you up spiritually from your dead soul. Jesus is alive and you and I are alive. But some of us, even though we've been raised from the dead, we're still walking around with grave clothes. Hmm. We're walking around with grave clothes of fear. We're walking around with grave, grave clothes of doubt, discouragement, and constant self-examination. God wants us to be free of these hindrances. The late... Dr. James Montgomery Boyce says it like this. Although it was Jesus alone who could bring the dead to life, he delighted to involve the bystanders in the miracle. First they were told to move the stone. Then after the miracle they were told to unbind Lazarus. True, we cannot bring the dead to life. But we can bring the word of Christ to them. We can do preparatory work and we can work afterward. We can remove the stones. The stones of ignorance, error, prejudice, and despair. After the miracle, we can help new Christians by unwinding the grave clothes of doubt, fear, introspection, and discouragement. In other words, we can't raise the dead, but you and I can bring the gospel to people and disciple them. And one other thing I think, one other thing I think deserves our attention and our application of this text is that we should never trivialize death. Never... Say, people who are Christians are wrong to grieve. And I've heard Christians say that. Never say that. That somehow it's unspiritual to mourn after a loved one has died because, after all, they went home to be with Jesus. I had someone tell me that one time. We need to be reminded that Jesus wept. And Paul told the uh, Roman church, rejoice with those who rejoice and what? Weep with those who weep or mourn with those who mourn. However, it is also true. 
that Christians ought to have an understanding of death and to have a deep confidence in the power of God. That they don't let the, the, the idea of death overtake them. We have to understand that we are not only to have hope in a future resurrection when the trumpet sounds and Christ returns and our bodies and minds are transformed, but to have a present experience of Jesus Christ now. We need to have a present reality over death. His present reality over death. I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, Oh, I can't wait, I can't, I can't, I can't wait to leave this earth and be with Jesus. And I think what they really mean is this. I can't wait to get away from my problems, whether it be physical, emotional, or spiritual. It's okay. It's okay to want to depart and be with Jesus. John said in Revelation, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And Paul said it would be far better for me to depart and to be with the Lord. But the problem is the interim, while we are still here. That's the problem. We need to stop trying to get away from our problems and keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And focus on his resurrection power in our lives now as his power works in us now. As Paul told the Philippians, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We have resurrection power today, folks. We don't have to wait until we get to heaven. Which will be far better. But God wants us to live in the now. Stop trying to get away from our problems. Yes, we want to be with Jesus. Yes, we can't wait to be with him. This body groans and waits to get... I mean, I remember when I first got saved. Brand new believer. And one of my close friends, who was a Christian, said to me, I can't wait to be with Jesus. And I said to him, really? I said, why? He said, and he was kind of a heavy set guy. He said, you don't know what it's like carrying a body like this around. <laughs> don't only think of the future glory that we be, you're thinking so much of the future glory that you become useless now. And at the same time, think about the future Glory, which will motivate us and encourage us to live 110% now for Him. You see the balance? Do you see the balance? Yes. I only heard my wife say, hmm. I want to make sure you guys are still alive. Otherwise, I'm going to have to resurrect you back to life. <laughs> Let me conclude with a story from Tim Keller about the power of Christ's resurrection. A minister was in Italy, and there he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but a little afraid of it, too. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there is a resurrection from the dead. He had an insidious uh, put over, um, I'm sorry, put all over the slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I do not believe in it. <laughs> Evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into the grave. So a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split the slab. It was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked, if an acorn, which has the power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power doing a person's life. And Keller comments, the minute you decide to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into your life. It is the power of the resurrection, the same thing that raised Jesus from the dead. 
Think of the things you see as immovable slabs in your life. Your bitterness, your insecurity, your fears, your self-doubts. Those things can be split and rolled off. The more you know Him, the more you grow into the power of His resurrection. And I'll conclude with what I said earlier, but personalize it for our church, Sonship. Let's hear, let's believe, let's obey the voice of Christ. And not only will we have eternal life with our grave clothes stripped off, stripped off, but we will see the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, we do thank you that Christ is the resurrection and the life. Christ raised us, raised us up from spiritual deadness. And it's Him that we need to focus on. Not the problems, not the things in life that will drag us down, but the Christ and Him alone and His resurrection power. God, help this text tonight to bring life to our hearts. That we, don't ne- we will never again walk in defeat, but walk in the resurrection and power of Jesus Christ. And we pray in His name. Amen.